Let's pray together, seek the Lord as we come before his word, for his aid. Lord, I, I pray that the words we've just sung are more than just music, a forgotten throwaway line, that we sit in willing bonds beneath thy feet. I pray that we would come indeed in a spirit of submission and humility to live this time under the Word. We pray for the Spirit of God's teaching, instruction to the believer, and conviction to those who are yet separated from Christ and their spirit. We praise you for the privilege to gather here, and we do pray in behalf of uh, the many that are struggling with illness in our assembly and those that are struggling with grief and hard news and difficulties. Lord, we come to you now and to your Word, and we long for a word of hope. We are not in despair, for death's sting has been removed by our Savior, and we come with hope and with confidence before your word today and pray that you'd feed your church to those who hear outside of this assembly and to those who are gathered here today. I pray that you'd move among us and teach us your truth. Open our eyes to that truth that your word reveals and that only by your spirit we can understand. We seek you and pray that you do your work for your glory in our lives. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I think few people are comfortable with the sight of blood. Some are unbothered by it. Others maybe grow used to it, such as soldiers or butchers or EMTs or hospital staff or the like. But for many people, the sight of blood can trigger a chemical reaction that causes the heart rate and the blood pressure to drop. And it can lead to dizziness and it can lead even to fainting. Bloodshed naturally gets our attention. There's just something, we're just wired that way to take notice. April of 1861, the first battle of the Civil War was fought near the town of Manassas Junction. It was a mere 25 miles from Washington, D.C. Convinced the war would end quickly, perhaps even that very day, reporters and congressional delegates and not a few civilians traveled from Washington to watch the battle. Many convinced the war would end on this very afternoon. Some even brought picnic baskets and blankets to enjoy the show of cannons thundering away on a beautiful spring day. So much fun. The story is told of a picnicker who saw a soldier's boot land on her blanket. She thoughtlessly picked it up and only to discover the boot was, shall we say, not empty, if you take my meaning. Picnic over. Severed feet have a tendency to do that. And civilians fled for safety from the first battle of what became the nation's most bloody war. Thousands died and were wounded that day, let alone the rest of the war. Warfare is a bloody affair, and it's horrifying to us. But in his infinite wisdom, God so ordered his relationship with ancient Israel under the old covenant that the nation would just have to get used to bloodshed. 
As America got used to bloodshed in the Civil War, so Israel had to get used to bloodshed in their religious rituals. Under the Old Covenant, God instituted a sacrificial system that demanded the daily slaughter of animals to atone for sin. We've read of some of that here in Leviticus 16 today, and we've sung of it as well today. For centuries, first at the tabernacle, then at Solomon's temple, then at the second temple, animal sacrifices were offered day after day after day for the forgiveness of sin. For the covering of sin. Under this covenant, God prepared His people for centuries to understand this message. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Animal after animal, year after year, the message was acted out in a sense. The wages of sin is death. And atonement comes only through blood. God's purpose in it all was to point forward to the ultimate death to atone for sin, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read of that here in Hebrews chapter 9 as we pick up uh, at verse 15, but notice again verse 11, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, that is the salvation that we have, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So as the great high priest, as the ultimate sacrifice for sin, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant system, going into heaven's very throne room, the ultimate picture and fulfillment of the tabernacle down here where the blood was offered again and again and again. Jesus goes into heaven, the fulfillment of all that was taking place on earth and offers his own death the work of sacrifice that he had completed on the cross. As we pick up at verse 15 then, chapter 9 continues to work out this theme with emphasis falling on the blood of Christ as the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin. Nothing short of our eternal salvation rests on the revelation that we're considering here today. The blood of Jesus pleads for me, we have sung. And here it is. In the text of Scripture. The necessity of perpetual blood sacrifice under the Old Covenant is worked out here beginning at verse 15 through 22. Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. That is, by offering his own blood to secure the forgiveness of his people and by entering into the throne room of God to present his atoning work, Jesus has become the mediator of a new covenant between God and his people. A new way of connecting to God that was based on the old way or was a fulfillment of the old covenant. But we saw the features of this new covenant in chapter 8, did we not? All who participate in this covenant internalize the word of God. It's not an external word only, but an internalization of that word. Secondly, it is a deep knowledge of the Lord. All who are participants in this new covenant know the Lord. It's a personal relationship. And thirdly, there is in this new covenant the forgiveness of sin. Not merely a covering of it, but an entire forgiveness to the one 
who rests in the blood of Christ shed for his people. Jesus stands then between the Father and sinners to secure this reconciling atonement for us. So he is the mediator of this new covenant relationship, of this new age of the Spirit that is inaugurated by Christ and his kingdom. What does Jesus' mediatorial work accomplish? Verse 15 So that, you see the next phrase there, so that, here's the connection, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Those who are called, who are those people? That's a reference to God's people, those who are called. Specifically, verse 15 has in mind God's people who lived under the Mosaic covenant. That's the first covenant that he's talking about here in verse 15. So what's the point? Jesus' death as the sacrificial lamb of God secures for his people the eternal inheritance of heaven. Jesus' death secures the redemption not only of the new covenant believer, but also of the old covenant believer. They were, in a sense, saved on credit. Don't ever think that the animals that were offered were saving them eternally. That they were, in a sense, covering sin on credit, waiting for the ultimate sacrifice to which all of the system pointed, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus' death secures that redemption. The animal's sacrifice is never sufficient, but Jesus' sacrifice retroactively redeeming believers who lived under that old covenant in fidelity to the Lord's direction. Now, in verses 16 and 17, the author takes something of a side trail, and this trail presents a a sizable interpretive challenge to us, but let's dig into it for a few moments. We see the point here. He is the mediator of this new covenant. His death has redeemed us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For, verse 16, where a will is involved, the death of the one who has made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Do you see the word translated will? A will and testament, a a final will of someone that says, this is where my property is to go after I die, that idea. If if you're tracking through the book of Hebrews, you say that's a new concept. Never been mention of a will here. What misses us is that in the Greek language, the word will is actually what's been translated covenant all the way along. Let's go into the weeds just a little bit here on this. Some believe that this word is a that this is a play on words. So the word should be translated will. In other words, verse 15 takes the word covenant in a religious sense. Verse 16 takes the word covenant in a legal sense. And so with a play on words, this is the very point. And our translation bears that out very well. If someone signs a will, the provisions of that will do not take effect until that person dies. So it is with the death of Jesus. Fair enough, we get that, fits our culture, makes sense. ESV translates it that way. But, what if we let the word will just be covenant? 
if we take it that way, as it's been translated all the way through the book, it's not the death of the testator that is in view, the one who is making the will, who must die for the will to take effect, but it's rather the sacrificial animal whose death is in view. Now, our translation is not going to bear that out, but it would bear it out if that was the interpretive position behind the text. Well, this takes us back, and in either event, we're accomplishing something here, but this takes us back to the context, to the historical context. How were covenants cut in that day? Notice the word. How were covenants cut in that day? They would take a sacrificial animal and literally cut it in half. And another one, and cut that one in half, and another one, and cut that in half, however many animals, however significant the covenant was. And half of the animal got put over on this side, and half of the animal got put over on this side. Let me do it this way, so I can walk somewhere. But then the two people, the two parties in the covenant, would walk between the split animals. It's a bloody affair. And as you're walking by, looking in your peripheral vision at half an animal here and half an animal here, what are you saying? If I break this covenant, may I be like this animal? And they would walk then between these animals to covenant with one another. In this way, covenanting parties established their death. It wasn't the death of the people participating in the covenant, but it was the death of the animals in their place should they fail the covenant. And I think that interpretation fits far better with verse 18 to come. It's not what our translation indicates, but again, in any event, the point is clearly made. If there's a will, someone has to die for that will to take effect. But if we look at it as the death of the animal, notice verse 18, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. It wasn't the blood of a testator. It was the blood of the animals in the making of that covenant. He takes that theme now further into verse 19 and following. For when every every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. All right, Gentiles, let's put our hats on. (laughs) There's a big distance between us and what on earth is going on here. It sounds rather bizarre, doesn't it? But the author refers here to a very significant ritual in which the hyssop plant was apparently tied to a stick with a strip of scarlet wool. So just picture this this small plant and it's wrapped around to this stick. And with that stick, they put the hyssop plant into a bucket or some container of blood-water mixture. And the priest would... Moses here dips that and then spritzes it on the people and on the tabernacle and on various things ritualistically to say that this is the blood of the covenant. This is the significance of what is going on between us and God. That blood must be shed for the forgiveness of the sinner who comes into the presence of God. And so sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle with this mixture of blood. 
the author's bringing us back to that Old Testament account and says then in conclusion, verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And here it is. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This is what the ritual was showing with the sacrifice of the animals as Moses The mediator between God and Israel established that old covenant and then the spritzing or sprinkling of the blood to say everything requires death because we deserve death. We deserve the judgment of God and the old covenant calibrated that way. Now, notice then, secondly, is the, the, a movement here to verse 23 and following where we find the ultimate and final blood sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. What's the copies of the heavenly things? That's the tabernacle there under the Old Covenant. That tabernacle, the vessels, the tabernacle itself. Indeed, as Exodus 24 says, the people themselves are purified with these rites. That was necessary in that setting. Verse 23 following, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So if those sacrifices were going on at the tabernacle under the old covenant, and if that was reflecting the heavenly realm, then those sacrifices are also going on in the heavenly realm. I think the plural here being a reference to the death of Christ, but just influenced by the plural usage here. But the sacrifices in the heavenly realm. So the type of the earthly tabernacle, the type of the old covenant ritual system, mirrors the fulfillment of the antitype in heaven. What's going on in earth under the old covenant is fulfilled in heaven. Well, it's going to raise a question, isn't it? Isn't that almost troubling? Why does God's throne room require purification? Well, you're looking at the reason. And I'm looking at the reason. It's not that God needs purification. Not that His dwelling place is impure. Here's the beauty of it. New Covenant believer in Christ. God proposes to meet with you and me there. Something's got to happen. Because in our sin, we're not ready to stand in the pristine purity of God's presence. That's what he was teaching Israel for century after century after century. And now, he brings it to us. Under that old covenant, the tabernacle had to be purified, not because God was impure, but because He designed to meet with sinners there at that tabernacle. And now is communicating to us by revelation that He intends to meet with you and me in the heavenly tabernacle. And so there must be a purification for sin. Our sin. What possible sacrifice could accomplish such a purification for us, readying us to stand in the presence of the triune God? Verse 24, it is very simply this, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God 
on our behalf. We can't figure that out. But the revelation of God confirms to us as believers this reality, this report, this good news of what has happened. Verse 24 again, Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. He could not go into the tabernacle. He couldn't go into the temple when he was on earth because he was not a Levitical priest. But a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that was prophesied long before he came. He has gone into the very throne room of God to appear in the presence of God in our behalf. Verse 24 reads, in our behalf. The priest, after the order of Melchizedek, appears as our advocate. That is, he shows up. He delivers for us. Verse 24. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself. So he's there in the presence of the Father. But it was not, verse 25, to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. That is, with the blood of an animal sacrifice. For then Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Wow, is there a lot there. Those those are deep words and beautiful truth. But let's take it a little at a time. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus did not purify us to enter heaven by offering the blood of a lamb. He offered his own life blood in our stead. He offered himself for us. And his sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. Is that not clear in these verses? Some years ago, our teen group took a tour of an area church, large church, and the tour guide leading the group around pointed to a closet and said, the body of Jesus is in there. It kind of scared some of our kids, I think, a little bit. They'd never heard such a thing. But it was very accurate theology with the church where he was serving, this guide. The body of Jesus we keep in there. What did he mean? With the belief that the bread of the Eucharist, the communion that that is literally becomes the body of Christ. And that again and again, His body is offered by priests in sacrifice. It certainly would seem on the basis of verses 25 and 26 that there are two egregious errors in this thinking. The first is that there's a continuing priesthood. There is one final high priest. And the second egregious error is the fact that there is a continuing sacrifice. That the body of Christ is repeatedly sacrificed time and time again and offered to the people. Put that together with verse 25 again. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. 
as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then, that is, if Jesus had to be repeatedly sacrificed, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, what does it say? Once for all. Once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He was the last sacrifice and he is the last high priest. We must be clear on this. At the end of the ages, that is, in these last days, in this last stretch of redemptive history in which Jesus has paid the last and final sacrifice for sin and thus assures us that sin will one day be gone. Believer, don't you look forward to that day when the very presence of sin is history. He promises that. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, not to come in sacrifice for sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Verse 27 There are two realities that God reveals about your future in this verse and mine. Number one, you will die. You will die once. You'll not return to earth somehow. You'll not be recycled into some other earth, some other place, some other form. You will die once and you will not come back. Secondly, after death, you will meet God as judge. And no specifics are provided here, but that judgment for some will be punishment as they have rejected Christ. For others, the judgment will be to determine, are you a child of God? Are your sins paid for by the blood of Christ? Is, have you, do you have a right to enter into heaven? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? That type of judgment. We will stand before God as we enter into the next life. Now notice the confidence that was given to us in that concern in verse 28. So Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many. I can enter into God's presence knowing that Christ has paid the penalty, the cost of my sin. He will appear that second time. There's a second coming of Christ. Just as some waited for the first coming, so we find ourselves to be waiting for the second. He will come not to secure the forgiveness of sins, for that He has already done, but to ultimately, finally save those. And how are they described? How are those described that Christ saves? As those who are eagerly waiting for Him to come. Notice there in verse 28 the reference to appearance. And maybe you've caught this, but let me just draw your attention to verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things. That's His first coming. He appeared. He showed up for His people. Verse 11 of chapter 9. And then notice verse 24. In verse 24, Now to appear in the presence of God in our behalf. Here, His appearance. He shows up for His people right now. And then, as we come to verse 28, He appears a second time. 
There's the future appearance. Christ is the ultimate Savior. He is the ultimate victor. He continues to appear for His people to show up at just the right time. He will come again. Again, as people waited for His first coming, and we think of that at this time of year particularly, we find ourselves waiting also for His second coming. And when Jesus returns to this earth, He will not come to save us from the penalty of our sin against God. This He's done. There is no condemnation, but He will save us from the very presence of sin. Jesus will put away sin, verse 26, and take us into God's presence. He may come during our lifetime. If not, then we know what he said. You will meet me in death. Either way, the believer will enter God's presence on the merits of Jesus once and forever, his once and forever atonement for sin. So our Creator seems to have fitted us with a heightened sensitivity to blood. And with that innate sensitivity to blood, he purposefully calibrates the old covenant system by year after year, century after century, to demonstrate the necessity of the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin, to point his people there, to understand the significance of the final fulfilling once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. It's no accident then that God instituted bloody sacrifice, bloody rituals, animals cut in half or sliced at the throat as the worshiper put their hands on the head of that sacrifice, feeling the life flow from that body, sprinkling droplets of blood to sanctify everything. It's no question God is getting the attention of His people and saying, get this, blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And all of this pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down His life in sacrifice and may we take it to heart, this once for all fulfillment of the great high priesthood of Christ in a once for all sacrifice that satisfies the anger of God against the sinner who puts his trust, puts her confidence in Christ crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. If you've not come to that place of saving trust in Christ, it's all right here. You need to pay for your sins. Or Christ can step in and pay that cost for you. Will you trust Him? Will you turn from your sin, your self-dependence, to put your trust in this Savior? For those of us who know Christ as Savior, we come. There is no other answer but for this to humble us and to deepen us. I don't come into God's presence standing in my merits, but I come standing in the work that He has done. We have sung, I trust, with integrity, And with joy of heart, that song this morning, the blood of Jesus speaks for me. And as we have opportunity, some of us to gather in home groups this afternoon, that's one of the questions that we'll look at is, how do we put this together in a world that mocks this, this bloody religion? 
How do we put that together? How do we find fidelity to our Lord? How do we cling to it? May we find deep within our soul the understanding that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What the bloody sacrifice of Jesus does through the centuries of preparation, what that bloody sacrifice does is it says loud and clear, it is not by works of righteousness which you have done. You can't be good enough. You cannot earn the favor of God. But the blood of Jesus is what speaks for me. He died to pay the penalty of my sin and of all who will trust in that work. Father, we praise you for this grace, for this once-for-all sacrifice. We praise you that it was once for all because it was complete, it was sufficient, it was everything that could possibly be done for the salvation of your people. And I pray that we would come to that place of simple faith and trust in Christ's substitutionary death. It is a bloody religion because our sin is serious. And you are a perfect and holy God. But we praise you for the way that through the centuries you have pointed to the sacrifice of Christ. And I pray that we would all embrace it in faith, in fidelity to you, and in thanksgiving. May we now sing of your grace for the blood of Jesus pleads for us. And in this we rejoice in his name.